Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. I'm excited to introduce to you today our special guest, Kevin Anderson. Kevin is a proud Philadelphian born and raised in the area. He's had quite the journey so far, including being a three-time NCAA golf championship qualifier while attending Rutgers University Camden campus in Division Three. In his professional life, Kevin has been a three-time founding U.S. sales hire at PropTech and co-working startups such as CADAM, Office Space, and Common Grounds. He's even closed deals with big-name clients like Sirius XM, Unity Technologies, Slack, Sonos, and Netflix. Kevin's expertise doesn't stop there. He's also a former leadership team member at JLL's Flex by JLL and currently serves as the VP of Workplace Solutions at Upflex. Outside of work, Kevin is a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Kevin Anderson. Hey, Kevin. Welcome. Really happy to have you on today. We did uh, have a chat several weeks back and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Sandra. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Likewise, enjoy the conversation and as a fan of the podcast, really thrilled to have been invited on. So, yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm calling you from my apartment in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Lived here for the past you know, seven or eight years, native to just across the bridge in a, in a little town called Delray, New Jersey. Uh, I've been working pretty much my entire career in, in prop tech and co-working. Uh, got started at a company called Q Global Software, um, which is now MRI Software, one of their subsidiaries. Uh, work with a company called Common Grounds Workplace as sort of WeWork competitor in the in the 2018-2019 sort of startup co-working environment. Work with some prop tech companies that you would have heard of, office-based software, uh, now Upflex, and uh, a former JLL employee as well on the Flex space team there. So, um, you know, I like to joke around and say I've got the most experience in commercial real estate for somebody with absolutely no experience in commercial <laughs> real estate. Um, and I've always sort of been uh, enamored by how people spend their time and what makes people tick. And I've always really had a lot of fun thinking about how the world could be different without having a 90 minute commute and um, just, you know, I'm constantly thinking about this stuff. So I'm really excited to just kind of be on the show and, and to chat with you about the future of work and how we're all going to spend our days. Yeah. And that's the thing that was really intriguing to me when we spoke last time, just kind of, you know, it was a very colorful conversation, which was great. And I hope to have something similar today. But first off, you know, why co-working? Like, what is it that attracted you into that into that space? You know, as with everything in my life, I I would first say the people. So I was attracted to it because of who was leading it, uh, the investors behind it, EMR Properties, Pacific Enterprises, really great, established, thoughtful real estate companies. And the leadership team there, most most specifically the CEO at the time, Jacob Bates. Jacob was a client of mine, turned a friend, turned a mentor, turned best buddy, lifelong friend. And uh, I met Jacob at, uh, you know, as, he, as I mentioned, he was a client of mine, but I ran into Jacob at Cornet when he had just started at Common Grounds. 
and we were talking about, you know, the changing dynamics of work and what at the time was a really forward thinking conversation about activity based working and activity based offices. Jacob was the head of real estate at Unity Technologies prior to joining Column Grounds. And we talked about some of his office projects where they were sort of the first company to really, really diligently use like movable wall technologies. And they incorporated that into their workplace strategy and how they changed teams and different sort of scrums of, of engineers. So when we got to talking, Jacob just said a lot of things that made sense to me. And as I mentioned, you know, I started in prop tech, not a commercial real estate. I've never signed a, you know, a hundred page lease. Uh, there's a lot of things that I know that I don't know, but a lot of the things that Jacob was saying at the time made sense to me around, you know, if you're a company, you know, at the time, uh, I think maybe Slack was getting ready to IPO. We would talk all the time about how eight years ago or seven years before they IPO, Slack was a video game company. Isn't it wild that they've got to like sign a 10 year lease? They've got to sign this. They've got to make this crazy decision that is might outlive their business and many times does outlive their business. So it was mainly just the flexibility. And dude, I'm a curious guy by nature and I like it when things make sense. It just made sense to me as, as a somebody who was thinking about real estate, but also as a person. Like, yeah, the office should be dynamic and change. The office should give me the feeling of Norm walking into cheers instead of the feeling of absolute dread. So, you know, I would be lying if I really sat down and said, oh, I want to be involved in co-working at any point in my life. Um, it was just knowing the, the right person and, and being involved with the right people and then following what made sense. Um, and, and since then, I just you know have continued to just meet more people and the more people I meet. There's a lot of diversity of thought and opinions, but I think we all, at the end of the day, want to live a good life. We want our work to be something that, you know, makes us feel like we're living a meaningful life. And more importantly, fuels the rest of our life, right? I want to go do other stuff. I want to, I want to fix the future of work, but I also want to go to a ball game. I want to take my girlfriend to Paris, you know, like I'm a human being. And I think we're all, as we start to like all be more involved with each other through social media and different working styles and stuff, I think we all realize like, wow. We can take the mask off a little bit. We are all actually people who kind of all have the same shared experiences. So long with an answer to, to a, a great question, but um, just following sort of what made sense. It's interesting that you, you talk about like just the human experiences and the things that we all, you know, we all seek or the things that we, we what we want. Yeah, I feel that, you know, the pandemic, I think, has made us all reflect on that a little bit. It sort of takes you out of sort of your day-to-day humdrum, go to work, come home, you know, eat, sleep, you know, rinse and repeat the next day. And so I think probably the fallout of of that is what we're experiencing right now, where people are just, it's all about me now. What's important to me, reestablishing my priorities, and then where does work fit into that, whereas before it was work was the number one priority. Now, is that to say that Work isn't a priority. No, because obviously you still need to work in order to pay the bills. At least the majority of us do. But it's kind of like, how do you make the best of both worlds? Because it's not an either or. They need to definitely complement each other. And I've heard from talking to different people about the whole like in office experience or just the office experience and how the need for or the, the wanting of people to go into an office is going to be based more and more on the experience, but yet the employee experience or the user experience or whatever hasn't really fully been defined. One of the things I think the one person, I think it was, it was a lady from Blackstone. I met her at IFMA actually 
but we were doing a roundtable. And she said something that was really interesting where they had done a study at their company and realized that, you know, uh, people, they basically decided on a location, but then that they realized that, you know, people weren't really using the location. And so she was a bit dumbfounded as to why that was actually occurring. And in comparison, they were looking at another office location and it was because of what was around. It wasn't because of the office or because of, of who was in the office, but what were the, the sort of supporting activities that could could be done after work or after you had that meeting that really sort of drew people to that respective location? What's interesting to me is when I when I think about like offices in general, most of the offices tend to be in the CBDs, right? And so experience traditionally has always been you went downtown to have any kind of half decent experience. But we all know that now people don't want to do the commute. So how do you enable a great experience when you're no longer commuting into a downtown popular area? That's a great question. How do you cultivate an experience without forcing people to go into a downtown commute? Well, not to backtrack, but one of the first things you said was about how, like, we all kind of came to this realization together collectively through COVID about, like, what we want to do. And it's sort of not just eat, sleep, repeat. I also I would say that like a lot of companies didn't really help us feel differently, if that makes sense. Like there's a combination of that, like this sort of collective human awakening. And then it was also a combination of like a lot of people got laid off. Like a lot of people weren't treated very well during the pandemic. It's been a insane whirlwind job market since the pandemic that we're only three years removed from the, the beginning of. So I, I think that's sort of. I'm just trying to say we didn't really help ourselves, right? A lot of things happen at once that make you start to realize, like, oh, my goodness, I'm a human being. I'm going to die someday. What do I want to do while I'm here? Like, country club memberships have skyrocketed since COVID, and they've held through the, this recessionary period because of the, the screw-it mentality, I think a lot, of, a lot of economists are calling it. I'll max out my credit card. I'll, have a, I'll carry around a country club bill because I've been waiting 10 years to join. I'm going to wait another five. What's going to happen in the next five years? So I think we're, we've all become a little bit more aware of, of the moment. And I think that is what companies need to be able to take advantage of to be able to cultivate this experience is create moments. You, you know, like if we're both in the same sort of real estate industry, it's, it's centered around conferences and handshaking. And it's amazing. You've got all these different people through all walks of life. But because we all share that common interest and that common goal, we end up just talking shop. You and me, we could be talking about anything right now, but we want to talk shop because we enjoy it. And I think that, the first step for companies is kind of introducing an element of, of letting go and an element of trust in our employees. We don't need to know that you're in the office because and know that you're sitting next to your boss and know that you're sending your emails. It's actually more like we want to let you guys come to the office and, and shoot the breeze and talk. You know, like I, I would I would love to, you know, what would attract me to the office if I could put on an in-office message that says, hey, guys, I'm in the office hanging out with my homies at work that I see once a month, maybe. I'm going to be in the moment and spend time with them rather than sitting on a Zoom meeting in an office that's 90 minutes from my house instead of at my house where I can, you know, pop in and see my dog when I want to. So I think trust and letting go and, and allowing people to just mingle in ways that they want to. And kind of going back to something else you said, it's about cultivating the experience through the users in a way that's really, really thoughtful. My girlfriend works for a medical device research company. So with that, you know, she's a psychology PhD. Uh, you know, with that, I'm just learning a lot about sort of survey design and how thoughtful these medical device companies are about 
how they make their products and how much money they spend on where the labeling is. You know, Spotify's got like a hundred PhDs who sit around for three quarters straight and think about where the play button is going to go on your phone so that it's easy for you to hit play when you're jogging. But workplace experience is usually left to two or three people with good taste who are severely undermanned and severely under budgeted to cultivate where we spend 80 percent of our lives. That's actually a really, really good point. And it's interesting because I've, I've been contemplating the last little while the whole concept of cultivating a worker experience. And, you know, I've said this in the past is, is it too late? Like I'm of the belief that, like you said, it's like people have realized that they need to be in the moment. And so it's, it's up to me to determine what kind of experience I want to have. And it's kind of like, can a company actually cultivate an experience for me? I don't know. Me personally, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe for others, yes. But because it's such a personal thing, it's the same idea of like trying to control what that experience is going to be when really as people, we dictate that virtually every day, right? Is, is that I'm going to either have a good day or I'm going to have a bad day or I might start out that it is a good day and then it ends up going sideways because, because of other people, right? But ultimately it's, you know, it's, it's the mindset. It's kind of the, the way that you think about, you know, the type of experience that you want to have and where and what's good enough for you. Like I've heard many times over too about the fact of you can't, people can't be thinking about just themselves, right? You have to think about the larger team, the benefit of the team, which is true. I totally, totally agree with that. But I also think that that also should have sort of an autonomous state where the team can decide it's not an all or nothing it's the flexibility even within the team of who can be present and who can't be present and not necessarily because it's going to detract from you know from that experience right like i can speak from you know uh, experience both in my current job and also where i worked previously where we were 100% remote because the company was national and so yeah you'd had quarterly meetings that the preference was the team members that were local went to the corporate head office for those quarterly meetings. Uh, but that's not to say that if, you know, on the particular day or for whatever reason, you couldn't make it down that it was frowned upon if you dialed in remotely. Right. Yeah. Most people made the effort, but, you know, that was kind of like, OK, whatever worked for you. And that's what made it. I think that's what made it work is, is that you still felt like, yeah, I'm going to make the effort, but it's not the push that you've need to physically be in the office one day, two day, three days a week. And that's the expectation that I think made it a lot more palatable. And it's not because it detracted from the experience by any means, because you went into the meeting room and guess what? You were on screen. You were communicating with people in a different province or in a different state. So it's like, well, what's the difference of doing that from home or doing it in a meeting room with other people that are from the same city around you, other than you get to share lunch and maybe have a couple of laughs with people. But that's if something if that's something that I value. If those are those are people that I want to interact with. Again, that's a personal choice, right? Yeah, I think I'm a sales guy, right? I've been a sales guy my whole life. I used to sell candy bars on my mom's dance recital when I was 10 years old. You know, like that's um, <laughs> that's that's who I am as a human being. And part of the sales life since the dawn of time has been 
you hit your numbers, you can kind of get away with whatever you want, right? Within within reason. But a lot of that is, oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go take some clients out golfing. I'm I got I'm not gonna be in the office today. And for some reason, when you're a sales guy who hits their numbers, you're given that trust. When really, it's probably just like a fundamental right of like a human being. Like you know what, you're entering into a contract with us as a, as an employee and employer relationship. Our business depends on you. Your livelihood depends on us. Maybe we should trust each other. I know it's it's easier to say when there's black and white targets in a, in a sort of uh, function like sales, but can't we can't we do that across all of our business lines and create targets that all of your groups are are held accountable to and have been included in and agreed to be accountable to that rather than just being told what to do? I I think a lot of life is not what you do but how you do it. Yeah, and. Part of, part of being a salesperson, I guess, is kind of knowing yeah, that you need to say things a little bit differently to get what you actually really want. Mm-hmm. And I think that companies kind of need to start to learn that lesson where it's like so much of life is how the message is received. Let's think about how, how these emails of like you got to go back to the office are being received by these people rather than how they'll look on LinkedIn or on Forbes. Yeah. Right. So I, I think it's a sort of about understanding your audience and speaking to your, to your audience like they need to be spoken to, not how you want to speak. Right. It's if I, I'm communicating right now. If people in podcast land like don't understand what I'm saying, guess whose fault it is? It's mine. Right. Because I want them to know what I'm saying. And I think you kind of have to understand that to get people to buy into your, your strategy of workplace, especially if it's going to be one that is around physical infrastructure. Yeah, I think it's it, what's interesting is what you just said. Um, I made a post a couple of weeks back on LinkedIn where I was talking about. You know, are, are companies buying our time? So as an employee, you know, is the company buying my time? And so it's like, yeah, okay, they're, they're buying my time. So there's an expectation that I need to show up, right? But then it was like, but, you know, I've worked as a consultant where a company has contracted to buy my time and they've paid more for my time, but I work way less hours than I do when I'm working at a severely discounted rate as an employee and I don't have the same luxury of freedom even though i'm technically delivering the same the same thing and so it's interesting to me to think about that is to say well how is it different like if if you're you're still buying my time you're still paying for a deliverable one way or the other but yet somehow companies feel like they need to have more control over where and how and when you do your work when you're an employee versus when you're a consultant or you're hired on as a contractor and you're the one that dictates how work is going to happen because really you're being compensated based on a deliverable, not on how, where, and when the work is being done. That is a great point. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a tough thing to respond to because you're a hundred percent right. The other thing that's interesting about it as well is from a, a work perspective is that if you have people who are working Full time. So this is kind of something that it's kind of been there in the background, but nobody's really talking about it is, you know, is that what we're is that what we're headed towards? Is is it going to be a workforce that is I mean, people we've referred to it as the gig economy, but it's kind of like where you have companies have less legal ramifications or obligations because you hire people on as contractors where then it releases them of a lot of stuff because you're working as an independent. Um, But then how does that play out? Like, it's interesting when you think about the future of work is employment from a status perspective going to remain the same or will that change because 
that's the only way that companies can kind of free themselves maybe of legal liability. And I don't know from a legal standpoint whether that's even true. Neither of us are lawyers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. But it's but it's interesting to think about it is to say, well, when you're hiring someone on as a contractor and I know, for example, in Canada, to be considered a contractor, you have to have multiple jobs. It's not like you're working for one exclusive employer. Then if you're considered a, a proper contractor. Right. That sort of, I think, eliminates the legal liability in terms of where work happens, I think. I said I'm not 100 percent certain, but it's interesting. It's just one of those things to say, well, if that's where it goes, it's like, okay, what does that mean then from a pay perspective? What does that mean from a location perspective of when, where, why, how work happens and with who, where you have complete autonomy and control over that as a person versus a company and the company's just buying your knowledge or your your services rather than buying you as a person to report to work, you know, from nine to five or eight to four, Monday to Friday. Yes. And it's like, I think that that will have to happen just as a result. And, and, you know, it's interesting having this conversation across borders because, uh, you know, certainly the American economy is a little bit different than the Canadian one at, at this very specific moment, you know, but I think the economy in which our world is built, it will necessitate that change. Because like we're seeing right now, how long are companies going to overhire and then lay off a significant percentage of that overhire? And then I, it kind of feels like right now, I don't know about you, but like this is very anecdotal information, but like a lot of my friends who have been unemployed for a while are now getting gainfully employed very quickly. So it seems to me like people are starting to realize that, oh man, we, we overreacted to the overreaction and we cut too many people. Now we need to hire more. And I think that like macroeconomically, when we have a federal, you know, a federal government that kind of they mess around with the interest rates and that, that impacts companies balance sheets in a way that has nothing to do with the employees. And now the employee count needs to be drastically reduced because that's the easy button for how to, you know, satisfy the board and satisfy the, 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 the markets and, and do what you need to do. So that combined with you know, like a big reason that like people don't, you know, like people don't want to come into the cities to go to work anymore is because they, they can't afford it. They can't afford to live close to the city. Like how nice would it be, Sandra, to be like one of these dudes on Mad Men? They're making like $136 a week in 1965 and they've got a 3000 square foot house in Costco and an apartment in Manhattan. Right. That would be, I would love to go into the office every day if I could. Oh, I'm, I'm staying late. I'm going to go to my apartment in Manhattan rather than I'm staying late. Uh, maybe I'll sleep here. You know, like, I, so I think that in order for people to afford the way that they want to live, and we're already seeing it, they're going to need to adopt, you know, secondary, third, fourth, fifth streams of income. And then empl- you know, employers are probably going to get hit to that and be like, okay, well, we know everyone's got, you know, five jobs at a time or five careers at a time. We're going to start to, you know, pay these folks as contractors. And, you know, and then that, that also brings in how things would work like, uh, you know, why is healthcare tied to employment in the United States? Like, there's a lot of things that are, that can be fundamentally changed with a stroke of a pen that would then enable people to to really embrace the fact that like they are they are able to have five, six, seven different opportunities at a time and control their time. Yeah, and I think that's that that's actually quite interesting too that you said that because I think that was one of the aha moments for a lot of people. So when you were saying about like people that got laid off or like, you know, in your in your circle and how, you know, they're now gainfully employed. 
what I'm seeing or it's sort of the experience on this side is that, yes, there's some people that, you know, got rehired in different jobs, but a lot of people decided to go their own. They're basically like, you know what? I can't rely on an employer for yep. my future. And you know what? Maybe they've upskilled during, uh, during the pandemic or, you know, the time that they have as a result of working from home enables them to do that, you know, 20% sort of side of the desk project, you know, while they're, they're gainfully employed, uh, that then enables them or just the experience that they've picked up as a result of working for many, many years working for, you know, the, the employers that they have. Yeah. Now all of a sudden it's like, you know what? I can do this on my own. And so they make the choice to basically be their own, their own boss and do multiple things, right? Based on things that they're passionate about, things that they, that they care about so that you're not relying on a single income stream that you're going to be faced with, oh my God, I'm going to lose everything because, you know, the interest rates are going through, through the roof and, you know, my job is on the line because of the pandemic or, you know, whatever that you're at the mercy of someone else that's going to dictate what kind of lifestyle you can live. And that just goes back to what you had mentioned earlier. Like how is employment going to have to change? Well, it's going to have to, because like that, the trade-off used to be, I'm going to take the job that I maybe don't love that. I maybe am not passionate about that. I maybe spend a little bit too much time away from my family so that that family can be secure. So that I know that my mortgage is going to be paid. So, you know, I know that there's going to be a, 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 what is it? A car in every driveway and a, and a chicken in every pot, right? Like, that was a trade-off. That trade-off doesn't exist anymore. Right. Right. So, or sorry, actually, I shouldn't say that. The trade-off could still exist, but a lot of companies are not holding up their end of the bargain. So then you, you have people who have gotten, you know, laid off. They've gotten hurt. They've gone through hell the last three years of the pandemic. And they're thinking, what am I going to do with myself? And I, I don't blame them for not thinking, I'm going to go get a steady job. Because <laughs> what is what is that anymore, right? So yeah. I think we're all going. You know, people are survivalists. We're all going to adapt. My my parents' generation, the, their generation before them, they had they had a career and they maybe had one or two jobs. And then you know my my maybe, maybe my brother who's six seven years older than me, kind of his generation is like they're going to have maybe one or two careers, completely different career changes, and four or five jobs inside of those careers. My generation, you know, I'm 30 years old. I'm I'm a millennial. My generation is like, okay, I'm going to have 10 different careers over my life. And I think what we're going to see with Gen Z and then Gen Alpha behind them, they're going to have five, six different careers at once, right? I am a, what do you do? Oh, I'm a real estate property consultant. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm a, I'm a drop shipper for Amazon. I caddy on the weekends. Like, and that's what I do. And I do it because that's how I want to spend my time, not because I need the secure position. So I think... And this kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier, the connectivity of just all of us. Like you don't get your news by reading the same paper as everybody where you're kind of being told you get your news from a lot of different sources. And it's very easy to start to realize like, man, there's a lot more going on out there than I realize. It's a bigger world than I realize, which makes me maybe a little bit less secure, but also opens up a hell of a lot of opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think how about, you know, one of the really great positive side effects of the of the of the pandemic is all these great companies that exist now to help enable employment across the globe. And how many more people who have opportunities to do things that they in 2019 were just were possible, but were not accepted. 
because of silly things like you've got to be in the office. Right. So there's a lot of talented people that are getting great opportunities that they never would have had because of, you know, the, the change that has been forced upon us. Imagine if it was the change that we really fully embraced. I think that you're that's absolutely true, because I think even just on from a personal experience and even, you know, just friends in my circle that, yeah, the, the whole world of work has opened, literally has opened up. Is that before your opportunities were limited to the city that you lived in and maybe even more restricted based on how much are you willing to commute? Like I live two hours from downtown Toronto. And so it's like it's got to be a really, really good opportunity for me to even consider the commute. Otherwise, it's like, no, I'm I'm my preference is to work from home. And I've been lucky to always have had the opportunity to work from home. But as I think about going forward, it's kind of like kind of like, okay, you have these like opportunities that you would have never had exposure to before where they're real considerations, whether they're contractual work, whether they're uh, full time employment opportunities. And it's what's interesting is, is that the narrative around the globalization of work, which has been around for a number of years, is the negativity of, oh, you know, these, you know, third world countries are going to, you know, take your job. And it's like, well, that might be true, right? But it, it's, it's a balance, right? You've got people, companies that are going to go after opportunities because it's, it's more cost effective to hire in, 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 in some other country versus hiring within their own country. But in the same token, it's like you have a skill set that you're like, okay, I can go out to the market where maybe it's not the big companies that are that I that I aspire to work for. Like you were saying, it's like, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. So, you know, I've worked for four companies. I think I'm my fourth or fifth, you know, large company that is working at a startup right now. But, you know, I've worked for large organizations in my career. And it was always, like you said, good brand companies. Yeah. Sometimes doing things that I'm not particularly crazy about, but hey, you know what? The money was good. The opportunity was great. It was learning whatever to say, okay, there's things that I want to do in my life, which centered around owning a home and you know all of the things that you know our generation wanted to do. I have a millennial daughter who's you know, because of mom was able to get into a home, but it's like you know there's there's friends in her circle that it's like. Buying a house is out of reach. Having a car, like, who cares? Like, she's often argued with me also in the past of, like, you know, my generation doesn't care about owning. Like, she's often said to me, she's like, why does it matter if I rent a place or own a place? And I was like, well, technically it doesn't matter. It's like, as long as you're happy, I don't really, doesn't. it's neither here nor there for me, right? But it's like, it, it kind of made me think about how, the priorities are different. It's like they would rather like live and experience and do different things. And even when you're talking about like just work, just work, like she's currently, she lost her job. She was, she was uh, working at a tech company. She lost her job just before Christmas. And she's like, I'm doing it my on my own this time. And so, you know, she's doing multiple things and she loves it. She's like, I actually get out of bed every morning looking forward to my work day because I'm doing all the things that I actually enjoy doing. And I have complete control over who I work with, when I work, how I do the work, the tools that I use, all of those things that are not dictated to me that, you know, you must work this way in order to produce this widget to be considered successful. That was actually the other part that I wanted to ask. 
So when you're describing, um, you know, sort of this this new way of thinking about work life and, you know, from a millennial's point of view, what about how success is defined? Because I've heard that many times over as well is, is that, well, you know, uh, it's, you, you know, the generation is either lazy or they're, you know, they're not motivated or they have no initiative. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, that's not how you become successful. Well, it's like, well, how do you define success? What is success? That's a great question. And I think, it, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is very intangible. Right. So I think success was a lot easier to find to define or is still easy to define in like the trades or in, in, in those types of careers that were a bit more, were more popular and more in demand or whatever, 50, 60 years ago. My dad's a contractor. When we drive around our hometown, he goes, I, I built that house. Right. I, I framed that house. I built that deck. I you should see the kitchen I did in that place. There's sort of a sense of pride and accomplishment. I am done this. Look at what I did. And you get to marvel at what you did. And I think a lot of the work that has been created by the tech boom does not give you that same sense of satisfaction. And that's why you see a lot of people who have made a lot of money, candidly, not working super duper hard, you know, working diligently, doing what they're told, you know, spending their time, their most valuable asset, but not breaking their backs, who are unhappy. Because they've not got that sense of tangibility. And I think what your daughter, what's your daughter's name? Alessia. Alessia? So mm -hmm. I, th I think, I think what Alessia is feeling is that for the first time in a while, that feeling of tangibility. And I think that as generations change and grow, and I think, you know, dude, everything's sort of a flat, time's a flat circle, man. No, like everything is a, a pendulum. And the pendulum right now is swinging back towards real moments. And you can't blame us, right? We've spent, you know, a year and a half inside of our houses, not being able to do anything we wanted to do. And I think that's what companies need to start to do is enable real moments that will help people feel successful. And then if people feel successful, we've talked about this, if they feel productive, if they feel like they're part of the team, then those success measures can be agreed upon and established and be probably more easily achieved because you know what you're looking for. I got a great book from one of my mentors, um, the John Doerr book, Measure What Matters. Right. Yes. And it's like if you can let if you can let people get in on the process of creating the values and creating the goals, you know, you mentioned earlier, we can all have different priorities. But if we have the same values, it's easier to define success. So, dude, for me, what's success? Success is, you know, when I don't wake up with a sort with a sick stomach about what I'm going to have to do today. Success for me is when I can say I can, you know, when people, my coworkers ask me about how's Nicole doing? Success for me is I'm playing golf every Saturday and Sunday with my buddies <laughs> at the club. And I think we're all, for a while, it was, I do not even know. Like, I think a lot of people just sometimes get caught up in dollar amounts or statuses. And a lot of that, you know, was stripped away during the pandemic. Having a lot of money was cool during the pandemic, but, like, you're still stuck inside your house, right? We're all people. And I think, you know, people are starting, I think success will be less defined by titles, especially because, like, titles are super-duper inflated everywhere you go these days. <laughs> I think that will just, like, stop being a thing soon. And, and about money and about status symbols. I own this. This is mine. And more about, I've done this. Look at what I've done. I felt successful when I didn't work for three weeks and went on tour with Dead and Company. That felt successful to me. And like, that's something that nobody can ever take away from me. I can lose my house. I can lose my money, but you, you can't take those experiences away from me. So I think the, the sooner that companies realize that enabling people to just feel like that 
is just as valuable as being able to measure whatever they determine the product, the new productivity statistic of the year is, is, and letting people get in on the ownership. I think about this a lot. Think about the people who are in like, like the really serious knowledge working and like management positions in, in corporate America and, and you know, North America right now. Um, these are the kids who spent like billions of dollars of their parents' monies on Sims. They want, they like, they want to express themselves, right? They've got, we've all got, dude, I'm, I'm not saying they, I'm one of them. Like I've got stickers all over my laptop, just like I had stickers all over my notebook in high school. This like people want to be expressive. People want to identify. I'm a deadhead. I'm a Disney adult. I'm, I'm, you know, a sports fanatic. Like people want to identify with something and they would love it for it to be their company. But right now companies are just so clueless to that fact and so concerned, you know, over the bottom line that I think there's sort of a, a lack of the lack of trust and lack of big picture thinking and more like, you know, dude, no, there's less people looking at themselves in the mirror realizing like, Maybe this isn't working. Yeah. Part of it is also the expectation that in order to be successful in their company, you have to fit their mold. So their way of doing things, which and when you don't, it's frowned upon. Right. So it's kind of like, well, that might have worked way back when, but things change, things evolve. And I think, like I said, this whole what whatever we want to call it, because it's been three years and I know that, you know, the we're all sort of tired of blaming stuff on the pandemic. But it certainly has changed, I believe, the mindset of people as they think about life and, and what is the priority in terms of how we want to live our life and where does work fit into that versus the older generations, me included. I will I'll be the first one to admit you know, not that I've sort of strived to, you know, climb the corporate ladder. I mean, everybody did that way back when, but it was, you know, I had my hardships, you know, as a, as a single mom for a number of years that it's like, you know what, you just ate it and you did it because you had bills to pay and there was things that you had to do, you know, and, and, and that might be different going forward. Cause it's like, if I think back now on like, you know, how, if this situation was to have happened, you know, back then, I don't know what I would have done because it would have that would have been just crushing for me. Right. But it's kind of like with the experiences and stuff like that, like you said, it's like, you know, you start you get creative. You start to think of, OK, you know, it's it's survival mode. Right. You're it's, it's fight or flight. And so yeah. you're basically then thinking about, well, how do I ensure that I'm not in this situation again and that I can rely on myself? To me, that's probably the best definition of success is when you can figure out how to stay afloat and not depend on someone else that's going to dictate whether or not you're going to, you're going to be able to maintain a lifestyle. You can't beat that. That's a tough spot to be in, right? When all your eggs are in somebody else's basket, we we all know that feeling. That is a tough scene. So with respect to what you're seeing in the world of work from your perspective, what's different? Like what do you see as being a fundamental difference of people who are working in co-working spaces versus in the traditional traditional office. One, the sites themselves are fundamentally different, right? Typically, you've got an office. Uh, I don't mean to speak with a broad brush, but mostly they're just sort of what was available at the time in the seat in the city where your CEO lived, like when they had the money that they needed to sign a lease, like, mm-hmm. and what was the nicest building at the time. Right. So a lot of the, a lot of the locations were just sort of stumbled upon and a lot of the infrastructure of the building itself is antiquated. Right. Because you've got companies 
you know, who's going to spend a lot of money right now in redesigning their, their corporate office? There are certain select few niche companies that have the money to do so. But realistically, in, a, in the economic environment we're in right now, where you're trying to trim the fat, who's going to, who's going to take on the, the, the six-figure design project to make the space more attractive? Right? Probably not happening. Whereas co-working spaces, you know, again, speaking with a very broad brush, there are, there are a lot of exceptions to what I'm about to say, but they're usually less than seven years old. They've been, they spent 220, you know, okay, between 120 and $220 a foot. They've had a team of four or five really smart people research that location and, and figure out the walkability score and make it most accessible for everybody. It's got newer technology systems. It's easier to access, and it's got hospitality. There's somebody there telling, saying, "Yo, Kev, what's up, man? How you been? Yeah, man, the Eagles game was sickening last night, wasn't it? Versus just going in, you know, to the elevator, waiting in line for the elevator, and then going to my cubicle. So I think that, not to say, you know, answer a great question with a stupid answer. Like they're nicer, <laughs> right? Like they're, they're nicer spaces. <laughs> like they're they're not, you know, half wall high cubicles. They're new furniture that's shiny and comfortable and has different types of seating, right? Like if I look around my apartment here, I probably have seven different types of chairs and I use them all, but I get one like lazy boy, you know, 10 year old recliner at the office, at the office in, in Midtown or wherever. So just, just nicer touches, which then leads to, you know, a, a frictionless experience, right? And dude, there's still a lot of friction in going into the office, no matter where you're going or how great it is. There's, there's, uncontrollable things that are going to happen to you on your way there, but you can control the controllables in a co-working space. They've got people on site that are going to help you. They've got the newer systems. They want to hear your feedback. They're constantly spending money because their business is that office, not just a byproduct of what they think the office should have been when they started the company. So I think that's, that's, I'm going to stick with that as my bold and underlined point is these offices are their business. And for the first time, these co-working operators are the ones that rely on the hospitality and the daily incremental revenue that comes with that hospitality. So they're, they're in it. Whereas a lot of the major landlords, they've had it on easy street for a hundred years, right? It's, it's kind of lather, rinse, repeat with a lot of the agreements that have been done. Your, your customer is not the end user, the employee. It's the capital markets. Whereas in a co-working operator, the customer is the customer. Right. I, I would, like, when I go to the office, I would like to be treated like a human, not a, a vehicle for a nice financial, uh, situation. You know, like that, that's, uh, yeah. so that's, that's what I'm, I'm sticking with that as the bold and underline, I think. Yeah. No, that, that's really, um, really insightful. So, and I think about the, the office and I think about what you were saying about the experience because I hear this a lot around hospitality and how hospitality is what's going to drive demand and kind of you need to have that whether you're in a typical commercial building or kind of the co-working stuff. I struggle with that and I'll tell you why. A lot of the times, you know, you get companies that will compare or list in the landlord space uh, compare to like the hotel experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, okay, but the hotel experience serves a very specific purpose, Mm -hmm. right? There's Yes, there's diversification in the hotel industry because you've got, you know, the coffee drinkers, the lunch, the events, kind of all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the majority of the business that goes into those spaces are 
vacationers, business travel, sort of that type of thing that need a place to sleep. Now, Airbnb kind of came in and, you know, tried to disrupt that. They probably did. I don't know what their market share is, but hotels still continue to exist. I don't see how that same sort of philosophy of hospitality would help businesses because an office is an office is an office. There is no diversification in an office yet anyways. <laughs> so that that's where the yet, right? If the office is going to exist as it exists today, it's not going to exist anymore. Like, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a brash thing to say to say like most of the time the office sucks, right? Like you're a little <laughs> bit too close to the toilet. You're a little bit too close to the guy whose breath smells bad. The conference room the video technology is not working and you like are going on a Zoom meeting. Most of the time going to the office as it exists stinks, right? That's just like the fact of life. So, you know, if we rewind a few hundred years, I think the first office, don't quote me on this, but I think like the first like office in recorded history was in like London or in, somewhere in England and is in the 1700s. And there's this whole dossier about the philosophy of why it was built about how well, we've got men who need to make things happen. And there's two types of things that need to happen. There's work that requires privacy and work that requires collaboration. That was 400 years ago. Right. I'm getting you know, off. I'm not a mathematician. Right. So now my opinion is that there are there are two types of work still. And that is your job, which is a combination of in-person and collaborative work, which can be facilitated anywhere on the globe at any time on the globe because we've got laptops and iPhones. And the other one is the socialization. People need to know who you are, whether we like it or not. Part of your job is making sure your boss knows that you're working hard making sure that everyone in the company knows that you're not a pain in the ass, right? Like there's a lot more politicking in the everyday life of the office worker than there was when the office was built. So if the office is going to survive, it needs to just be a place where people want to go and convene like an athletic club, like a country club, somewhere where I just want to go because I want to be in the mix. And I don't want to be forgotten. And I think that, you know, people are starting to tack onto it and say, oh, yeah, the Gen, the Gen Zers, they want more, you know, the TikTok kids, they want a little bit more leadership. Duh. Why would I have a boss if they can't teach me anything? Do you know what I mean? So give, put, make the office a place where your boss can teach you something that has nothing to do with the company. Make the office a place where I can go do things that I can't do because they're too expensive these days, like, like a VIP concert experience. And I know I sound crazy, like, but like, this is the way, you know, I was talking about the Sims earlier. I think about this stuff. I think about the metaverse a lot. I think there's some cool stuff being done in, in the metaverse. But I also think, like, when I see meetings in the metaverse that, that look like a WeWork and people are wearing metaverse Banana Republic clothes, I shiver. Because it's like, we could be having this meeting anywhere. We could be having this meeting at Cheers. We could be having this meeting at Gringotts Bank. And we're having this at a, at a WeWork. And then I started thinking, well, dude, office landlords are giving away $300 a foot, $200 a foot. That's all the money in the world. You could do anything with that money. Just make it what your people want. Let them, let them pretend it's a Sims and build your own office. Right. And it's, and then, then it's sort of back to your, your question, which I think is a very valid question. And it's almost unanswerable. Like if you don't want to do that, then why have an office? Right. Right. Cause you want to, cause you want to watch me do stuff. I, 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 nobody's with that anymore. It's not happening, right? The, like the toothpaste is not going back in the tube. You want to go to a concert right now? Tickets are a thousand dollars for the mezzanine. People are going, but you couldn't pay anyone to go to the office of the way it exists right now. Kevin, thank you very much for your time. This has been a fun conversation. 
uh, I'm sure there'll be many more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, uh, this, this is a lot of fun for me. So thanks for thanks for putting up with my shtick. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Kevin.